Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible research psychologist, sex educator, and relationship coach, Jolie Hamilton. Hello, Jolie, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Today, we are going to be talking about creating an action plan for love. And for those that don't know, Jolie Hamilton is a research psychologist, an ASEC certified sex educator, and a sex and relationship coach. She holds a doctorate in depth psychology from the Pacifica Graduate Institute. Jolie has spent many years working directly with clients, helping them improve their relationship skills, and she is also a professor of human sexuality. Over the past two decades, she has started more than 10 business ventures ranging from clothing design to personal training to providing doula services, all while managing her own relationships, pursuing her graduate degrees, and raising and homeschooling seven kids. How are you doing today, Jolie? <laughs> well, you read that list and I think, oh, maybe I'm tired. But, <laughs> but I always try to reach past tired because 2020's brought a lot of challenges. And honestly, I'm great today. Well, thanks so, so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to hop on the show. And I'm so curious about your life. And I wouldn't mind just digging a little bit into your personal life because you wrote in your book about having a kind of a wake up call that your marriage wasn't working and that you weren't happy. So tell our listeners a little bit about what happened. Yeah, so... I've had a few wake-up calls in in my relationship history, for sure. And I, I write about a couple of them in the book. But the one that really catalyzed a change, a, a, me shifting my approach to relationships entirely, was really straightforward. I had a miserable morning. I just had a miserable, miserable morning where I felt overburdened and a mess. And I, I was literally a mess because I had managed to drop eggs all over me because I was so overburdened that I was just losing my mind constantly. And, you know, that that phrase burnt out is burnt out for a reason, right? I was done. And I gave up a lot during this particular period of my time. I had given up a lot to build a business and to be someone who had something, who, who had something I could count on. And that was fine. But there were seven kids involved. There was more than one business. I was back in school. So when push came to shove every day, I found that I was pulling from the one place it felt like I could get some slack. My partner wanted to be there for me, um, and he's a great guy. So I was I was not showing up in the relationship. And what happened was that I actually pulled back even further and started to expect him to like read my mind. And I started expecting that that just because I was good at everything else, that I'd be good at my relationship. And it did not work well. <laughs> so yeah, we had a real we had a real problem brewing. I mean, I was thinking about leaving all the time. It was just too it was too big. It felt like it was too big to fix. And I felt like I was falling into all these habits that I'd had forever. And they felt like they defined my reality. Like I was never gonna be able to break out of these habits. So why even keep trying, right? So it sounds like you were overwhelmed in so many areas of your life, 
I had the seven kids, had the multiple businesses, studying for grad school. And the one thing that kind of fell behind and you kind of pushed back a little bit basically was your marriage. So then what happened? I had a moment and it was it was really a moment. Um, I even I can remember the exact minute um, I was laying in bed and you know, fiddling with my phone and just, you know, I guess doom scrolling in my own way before we had that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and something snapped inside me. And I I think I, I was having this moment where I thought, I'm going to leave. And I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know what it meant that I might even leave. And th- with the snap came this little voice that said, just say it, just say it. And I turned to my partner in bed. We were just laying there at some random Saturday. And I just confessed. I confessed what I was feeling. I confessed that I had not been speaking my truth. I had not been showing up the way I wanted to. And that I wanted something more. And it was so terrifying. It was so hard, which is strange for me to say because saying hard things is something I've been known for my whole life. But this was like the hard thing behind the hard thing. This was admitting that not only was I not showing up the way I wanted to, but I wasn't getting out of the relationship what I needed, what I felt like I really wanted. And I just had to admit it. Once I said it out loud, it was like the glass broke and everything felt different. The two of us actually saw each other. And honestly, it felt like we saw each other for the first time in in four years. Like, oh, it's you. Wait a minute. I don't want to (laughs) leave. I want to figure out how to do this. And I didn't know. It was a shocking, crystalline, like jarred my soul moment. And lucky for me, when I said that, because I said it with feeling and because I got lucky that in the moment I said it, he saw me. He responded Mm. and had a similar moment. And we talked about it after and processed it after. But in that moment, it was just that that recognition of, oh, I want to spend my time with you. So whatever we're doing, who cares? Whatever we thought was the script we had to live out, who cares? Let's start again right now, this minute. And it really did. It's a turning point. Everything in the relationship is different after that. Wow. Really powerful story. And it's A common one I find, I find oftentimes in relationships, a problem comes up and we have it like in our mind and we're like, this is it. This problem is unresolvable and there's nothing we can do about it. We should probably split up. But then when we find the courage to like talk to our partner, we bring it up and they're like, what? Oh, wow. You've been feeling that way. Oh my gosh. Let me do X, Y, Z. Thank you so much for sharing this with me. Yeah. So it's amazing to hear this like process of opening up that you went through and kind of developing almost a willingness to communicate problems that came up. And I wanted to ask you more about the skills that we can bring into our loving relationships, because you do write that relating well is a learnable skill, that love is a learnable skill. So I'm curious, what types of skills do you think are the best benefit for our relationships? So I came to that conclusion because, you know, I'm a, I'm a thinking type. I'm a, I'm a Myers-Briggs ENTJ. Like, I, I think my way out of my problems in general. So I needed to believe at the beginning that love was learnable because the habits I had weren't very helpful. So I just needed to believe. And it took years for me to prove to myself that, in fact, love is a learnable set of skills. And the things that stand out the most to me over the, this long process have been that I needed to learn how to recognize my actual wants and needs and to be able to differentiate between a want and a need. That's not easy. A lot of us were taught to hide from our desire. And even I had a great message growing up. I had two grandmothers who both told me it's good to want things. And yet still, I would push down my own true wants and take on stories and scripts. 
So getting to know how to recognize your actual wants and needs, learning how to tune into your body and feel your want, that's a huge one. But then that all that want can still be thwarted if we don't learn this other skill of how to actually ask. And there's no one way. You know, it's actually, it's a long process to figure out all the many ways we can ask for what we want and need. And it's not just verbalizing, though that's certainly important. Um, it's about being able to figure out how you and your partner communicate best and how you communicate when you're not at your best. What can you do when you can't show up with your full 100%? How could you still ask for what you need? And that brings us to the third one that I think is a huge deal, which is just learning how to set boundaries. If we learn how to set boundaries, it means we, it actually implies that we can recognize our needs because if I'm setting a boundary, it's around something that I sense that I need. And then learning how to navigate your partner's boundaries. Like boundaries aren't this hard and fast set of rules that we tend to think of them as. Instead, it's really a nuanced conversation, especially once you're talking about a long-term relationship. We use body language to communicate our boundaries. We use language, spoken language, but we also use metaphor. You know, we speak in these poetic ways that we don't even realize we're doing. So figuring out how to communicate our boundaries is a big deal. And I think that the other thing is just being able to be courageous in that moment when everything feels lost, being willing to surrender a little bit to the process because it's not going to be necessarily easy. And that's hard, especially if you're the type of person like I am who really, really, really wants to be able to get a sure thing. I <laughs> mm. <laughs> have to be willing to surrender a little bit too. Wow. So really beautiful advice here. I'm going to summarize what I'm hearing. Number one, we want to recognize our actual wants and needs. My follow-up question is going to make the difference, but let's get, we'll get to that yeah. in just a second. <laughs> so two, actually ask and then that also involves getting into knowing your communication styles. And number three, boundaries. And four, be willing to surrender. In each one of those, we could do a little deep dive in. But since you mentioned it before, you said many people confuse what is a want and what is a need. So what's the biggest difference between the two? Yeah, so I picture these as a need will actually stop me from being able to function in the world if I can't get that need met, right? There's lots and lots of want, and I think want is wonderful. I am all about desire and leaning into your desire. But a need, that's that's something that we want to meet in a, in a comprehensive way. So one of the ways that I help people sort these two things is, you know, I'll have people make a list of deal breakers. What are your absolute deal breakers? These are the things that you are not willing to put up with, or these are the things you absolutely have to have. And I'll have them start with, you know, a list of 20 or so. But then we have a longer conversation about, yeah, okay, so now if you couldn't choose all 20 of these, what are the top five? What are the top three? It's not a single conversation. This is about sifting through. Oh, actually, I can be flexible in some places. Some of these things are wants and some of them are my deal breakers, at least as I am right now. And once you've sorted those, you can start to work on the problem in a, in a sort of graduated way. We don't have to try to get our relationship to work perfectly in every sphere all the time right from the beginning. It's okay to be going through a process. So what I'm hearing from you is basically that like, if we don't get a need met, it's going to create some pain and suffering. Well, like if a desire is not met, like we'll be okay. Like I really wanted ice cream after dinner or something, but I didn't get it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The love that you need to nourish your soul is different from all the desire you have for all the, the huge, you know, boisterous vacation style love, right? And I think we, we all need a little bit of that too. 
but you know we're in we're in tough times right now it's a good time to be clear about what we actually need to nourish ourselves so you mentioned making a list of deal breakers and i wanted to kind of ask you what some examples of what a deal breaker might be and perhaps we can even tie this into boundaries because i feel like once we know what is a deal breaker in our lives and we're going to set appropriate boundaries in the relationship Many episodes ago, we had Marsha Baczynski on the show, and it was all about setting healthy boundaries and how important it is. But we didn't quite get into the specifics. And a few listeners were like, well, I love my partner. I want to do things for them. And we're, we're here for connection and intimacy and closeness, right? So why would I want to set boundaries in my relationship? So what are some examples of healthy ways to set boundaries that are actually relationship serving? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a wonderful point. And I think Conversations around boundaries often sound like they're identical to conversations of consent. And I want to just say that for the purposes of this conversation, let's sort those out a little bit and say inside a consensual moment, let's say everybody is on board and you've had a conversation and you are in a consensual mode of being right now, within that, you may still have boundaries that you want observed. In other words, you don't consent to every single thing that's ever going to happen in that moment. It's a complicated idea, but we can make it practical by thinking about touch. So the ways that I want to touch and be touched may be very specific. So I have a deal breaker that some people find to be hysterical. (laughs) A deal breaker for me is that if I am lightly massaged, I lose my mind. I cannot stand that. So just like a light (laughs) stroking, it's so upsetting to me. It sets off all of my body signals. So for me, one of my actual deal breakers is light touch massage. Nope, right? I set that boundary, but it's not a consent violation for my partner to just walk in and touch me because we have lots and lots of conversations about this. I just had to, over time, realize I have to tell him, you know what, I need you to actually touch me more firmly. That feels safer to me. And once I communicated that, he was like, oh, I can do that. That's not a problem. He literally just reaches over and touches me more firmly. And that feels safe. Touch also comes up when people think about, you know, when do we want to be touched and how do we want to be touched and under what circumstances we want to be touched. It's okay to get specific. It's okay to go back to the drawing board, so to speak. You can be in a relationship for decades and want to go back to the drawing board and redefine what the boundaries around your intimate touch are. And figure out what works for you now because your body has been changing. Your yourself has been changing, right? So I like to have people do some of those basic touch exercises that you'll find at, it, so many people do them at the beginning of relationships without even realizing it. You're experimenting with each other. It's good to revisit that. And that gives you a chance to set a new boundary. There are other kinds of boundaries too, though. Touch is not the only one. It's common for people to not want boundaries when they want to just totally enmesh with their partner. They want to to feel that oneness, that unity, and it, it can be beautiful, but it can have its real drawbacks too. We can lose our sense of self and we can actually lose our sense of novelty with our partner as well and become bored with them because we're not actually allowing there to be boundaries between us. A boundary lets us differentiate and see our, our partner as a sacred other, like this, this other capital O, right? So if I can be clear that, for instance, I like the water in the hot tub to be very, very hot and my partner likes it to be very cool comparatively, and we can talk about that. That's just a way we can know each other different. And that's a really practical one. But another could just be, hey, you know what? I don't enjoy the same activities you do. And that's a good thing. 
we can now share stories about those activities and go off and do those and let ourselves be different so that we're interesting and novel to our partners at the same time that we are this secure, safe base for our partners. It's a dance. It's not, it's not simple. I was just thinking that it was a dance basically between connection and independence, between becoming one in relationship and recognizing that you have different desires and needs and hobbies and things that you enjoy. And you don't always, you know, have to do 100% of your activities together. You mentioned with your clients that you have them make a list of deal breakers and then narrow it down to their top five or top three. And I'm wondering what are some of the most common deal breakers that either people have or perhaps like you encourage people to have because it is really important in a relationship. So one of the things that I like to do when they're starting off with this long list, I like to have them start with a long list because often we pick really superficial things that we think are deal breakers for us. So people will have a superficial attraction to a, you know, a certain look or a certain way someone moves or whatever, and they'll put that on their deal breakers list. And if you have one, that's fine. I'm not judging it. But Usually, once we dig deeper, we realize those aren't the deal breakers. Not really. Those aren't the things that are going to to drive us batty inside a relationship. The things that we really want to look at are, can this person see me? Can they actually allow themselves to be open to me in ways that work for me? So in other words, we could use the love languages idea, you know, Gary Chapman's idea of love languages. Can they love me in a way that I can recognize, right? So in other words, if If I really need someone who's willing to talk to me and willing to share long walks while we talk, that could be a real need for me. But if I'm a very quiet person and I really don't want to give that, and I really don't want to be constantly pulled at to be talking more because that just doesn't suit me, that's the kind of thing I like people to to say, understand yourself. Is that something that you're open to shifting or is this actually your peace? Is that your home? Is that your home base? It's really about knowing yourself. It's not so much about what's the deal breaker in the other person's behavior, but how do I want to be in the world? And what am I willing to shift on? Because flexibility is wonderful. What am I willing to shift on? And what is essential to me that I love so much that it's it's mine and I'm going to hold it, right? That's usually a fairly short list. Most of the people I have talked to are flexible and want to be changed by their partners in in many, many ways. But there is this sort of essential us, you know, that we want to hold as well. Yeah, listening to you, just the word self-awareness keep coming up. When we think about deal breakers, we think, oh, you know, I want I need the person to, I don't know, be making this much money to look like this, not to cheat. Like they're like the big things versus what I'm hearing from you is actually, no, think about who you are, what you want. And what you need to be full of yourself and open in relationship and find a person that's compatible with you in that way. Like there are some people who want an adventure partner to climb mountains with. And there are other people who want a quiet partner to read a book with by the fire. It's like finding out that your partner loves you, not in spite of your foibles and your uniqueness, but because of it, right? Because you're like that. That's a game changer. That's so different than somebody who manages or handles a part of you. I love that. We want to love the whole person, right? So you mentioned, okay, we want to be self-aware of our wants, our needs, and be able to distinguish the difference. 
We want to be aware of our deal breakers and our boundaries. And you do indeed write that self-awareness is a master skill for relationships. So I'm wondering what are some other things we want to be aware of in ourselves? Yeah. So I have seven teenagers. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm working with these burgeoning souls, right? They're coming into their own. And I think that what I talk to about them so much is useful for all of us, which is our tendency to project our shadow onto other people. We take these bits of ourselves that we've disowned and we see them out in the world. And so often we see them on the people we actually love the most. And in some ways you can look at it as the act of falling in love, that feeling of limerence, that feeling of falling into something wonderful is projection. It is projecting the wonderful parts of myself onto the other person, seeing this resonance and feeling like we are made for each other. But the other side of that is seeing these parts of ourselves that we are afraid of or we feel like aren't good and we project them out into the world. And it's bad enough when that happens, you know, with a colleague or just a, an acquaintance, but it is extra challenging when we are projecting that stuff onto our partners. So just becoming aware and really owning these disowned parts of ourselves so that we can withdraw those projections own our own stuff and see the other person for the unique autonomous individual that they are and, and get to know them. They're going to have their own actual stuff. We don't need to pin ours on top of it. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. That's so important to also be aware of our own shadow in relationships. So I know that you have a PhD in depth psychology and are very familiar with the world of Carl Jung. But I also know that the term shadow can mean very different things in different circles. So from a Jungian perspective, what is the shadow? Yeah, so Jung called the shadow the, the apprentice piece. Um, it was the first piece of your soul that you'll meet on a journey to become acquainted with your whole self, right? Jung never says that you're not whole. He, in fact, believes very much that people are whole, but that they're undifferentiated. It's a sort of naive, that brand new newborn whole. And that over time, we come to know ourselves and actually understand and grasp ourselves. And one of the first things we have to do is we meet our own shadow. He describes it as a narrow passageway that we squeeze ourselves through because meeting the shadow is hard. It's meeting all that stuff that you lopped off, all these pieces of yourself that, you know, you're growing up and your parents are, are teaching you how to be pro-socially, behaviorally, you know, appropriate and you're, <laughs> um, and, and just molding you to be who they hope to see in the world. And some of those things hurt. And some of those things cause us to, to throw away bits of ourselves. Then those things take on this tone that's really difficult for us to accept. We disown them. It's not that they go away. So you can visualize it. Um, Robert Bly visualizes it as, you know, the long bag that we drag behind us. You throw these pieces of yourselves <laughs> into this bag and it becomes this burden that we carry. And that shadowy burden, unpacking it and reclaiming the good and the bad allows us to meet the other in this entirely new way. But it's very effortful because we have to face the fact that we are not only the light, we are all. And that doesn't mean that we are broken or anything. We're just, we're complicated. We're multiple. We can be contradictory and that's okay. That's in fact exactly what humanity is. So embrace it, embrace that mess. So we can contain multitudes as Whitman would say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that phrase, that the shadow is the first piece of our soul that we meet when becoming acquainted with our whole self. So I wanted to get into today's topic, creating an action plan for love. 
and you are an entrepreneur. And it seems like you're taking a very similar approach to relationships in terms of coming up with almost like a business plan or an action plan. And you write about how important it is. So I'm curious, um, why don't you just tell people to follow their hearts and trust and love and their intuition? Yeah, this is the best question I've been asked in a while. <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> um, okay, I don't because for years people told me that. And all it did was lead me to believe that I was unsalvageable. Because I'm I'm pretty high maintenance and I'm pretty high energy. I'm a type A kind of person. I, I over plan and I'm very high achieving, but I'm also hard on myself. So when people would tell me to just trust myself and trust in love, all I would hear is, you're not, you can't do this. This is outside of your skill set. So I just found that telling people who, who aren't naturally gifted at surrender and letting go, telling them to do that, it's just all triggery. It doesn't, it doesn't actually get them there. So what I found is that breaking down the steps of getting there and making it actionable is a reasonable approach. It's just a different approach. Yeah, I really appreciate you owning your stuff, so to speak, acknowledging the type of personality that you have, that you are high maintenance and type A, and that's okay. And that doesn't mean that you're any less deserving of love. And actually, by acknowledging who you are as a person puts you further along that path of love. So you mentioned some steps that we want to create in creating an action plan. So what are some of the first steps in creating our action plan for love? Yeah. So the, the first thing that I always say is just awareness, right? We want to get aware because our early patterns tend to run away with the show when it comes to love. You know, we, we have our early patterns from our childhood and they often become so deeply embedded that we mistake them for ourselves. Like we mistake those early patterns. And so this is an opportunity. Creating an action plan is actually an opportunity to break generational cycles of loving in a sort of unskilled, unthoughtful way, right? Some people come to it very naturally and it just works. Many people don't, or we wouldn't have all this pain. So at the beginning, it's really just about bringing awareness to what's happening right now and stop for a little while thinking about all the things you you feel you've done wrong in love in the past or all the things you feel were done wrong to you and stop projecting into the future the idea that you can't do this or that your patterns make you unlovable and just look at how you're behaving in your relationship right now and just spend some time with that. How am I showing up? And this is where, you know, journaling works really well for some people. Um, if you're extroverted and you need to talk, voice memos work great. You know, I will go on a walk and just talk to myself, um, which is great because, you know, nowadays everybody's talking into headphones anyway, so nobody thinks anything of it. Spend some time getting to know where you're at right now and sit with it. And then from there, I ask people to fill in this sentence. What do you wish you change? You could change about how your relationship goes, but you're, you know you just can't. Like, you, you know, it's just not possible. And I leave them in that spot for a while. What do you know just can't get any better? You're just, you suck at this. This is too much. I can't do this. Let yourself sit <laughs> in, you know, in community, I sit with people while, while we're talking about this. What's hopeless for you? Because in that hopelessness, that's right there. There's your opportunity. Because the next step is to just identify your knowledge gaps. What do you need to know? What's missing for you? What did you never get taught? And what are your skill gaps? What do you need to practice? You know, I needed to practice slowing down. I run very, very, very fast. So I needed to practice slowing down. And it never occurred to me until 
someone suggested exactly this, then I could just practice slowing down in love. And once I did, things shifted. And the, the last step and that I, that I include very early in the process is we need to make a safety plan for ourselves. And when I say safety plan, I just mean, what are you going to do when things feel hopeless and out of control? So make yourself a little sheet of paper that's just your self-care plan. Who are you going to call? Who's your, who's your first call when you're feeling like this is all hopeless? And I love to think that our partners can always be there for us. But in reality, having a friend, another person that we can just say, I'm overwhelmed. I don't even need to tell you the details. I'm just overwhelmed. Could we spend some time just just being together and, and not being in this mess? And also include for yourself a way to stop the situation when you're flooded and overwhelmed. So in our relationship, um, my husband and I use a safe word. And we don't just use it in the bedroom. We use a safe word in the kitchen. When we're arguing, we use a safe word if one of us is overwhelmed. So I have people put in place, what's going to be your path to safety? How are you going to feel safe as you start to practice new habits? And write it down. It's, you know, you just need a couple of things. Who's your first call when you can't talk to your partner? What's your safety plan? What do you need to do? And what's your safe word? How do you stop the train when it's just running (laughs) right off the rails? How do you stop it? What what are you going to do? And that's a pretty concise conversation you can have with your partner about, yeah, how could we just do this better? And if we work that safety plan as we're working these other steps, seeing where we are now and what we might want to change and figuring out what we need to learn about, if we have that safety plan in place, it makes the other steps go easier. That's awesome. So first we have like another thing we want to be self-aware of, in this case, our early patterns. And we have had a few episodes on attachment theory and just how important it is to be aware of how our early relationships with parents and perhaps even early intimate relationships continue to affect us. And from there, we sit with it and we slow down and then we make a safety plan. And that also reminds me of The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse that John Gottman talks about, where basically one of them is stonewalling. And people think that like the person stonewalling uh, needs to communicate more. But actually, they're stonewalling because they're so flooded with emotions and other things that they can't think straight. And they kind of stonewall as a way of protection. I love this idea. So I want to go a little bit more into what else is included in our safety plan. So you mentioned a couple of things. One, have a friend that you can talk to. And then two, also have some self-care practices. So what are some other things we put in our safety plan? Yeah. So a couple of great ones are a playlist, a playlist that you have in your phone that you can turn on just says, you know, label it as such. It's your um, I feel safe playlist. Some people have labeled it with like a little code word. Sometimes they'll even use their safe word as the label. Choose some songs that will bring you back into like, right, I I belong here. I am safe. I can find my way back out of this feeling again. Um, A way to make a little space for yourself. Sometimes just putting in the earbuds really just changes the the mood. I have a safety movie (laughs) that I go to and I watch (laughs) over and over and over again to get out of a flooded space. And we can also have, how do we need to move our bodies? Because we're all different, right? Some people need to move big and some people need to get all cozy. Um, So figure out one or two ways that you can move your body or get your body into a position that will feel safer, let's say, safer than you are right now. And write it down. This is like creating a little cheat sheet for yourself. Like, what do I need to do? And then I'll put down, I'll I'll write down on the bottom of my safety plan, like, get out your journal. I'll literally write it down. Get out your journal, write it down. Because usually once we write something down, we can see that it's, it's workable. 
everything's talk aboutable. But when when uh-huh. it's going around and around and around in our head, it doesn't necessarily feel that way. So I love that phrase you just said. Everything is talk aboutable. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, like when you and your husband are having a very heated argument and then you use your conversation safe word, what happens? Yeah. When we hear that word. So we chose a funny word, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is helpful. And and when when either of us hears that word at first, when one of us would use that word, often the other one would kind of like like try to rush past it and, and just like almost like not 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 stop the conversation, but try to like just turn the direction 180 degrees. We'll talk about something else. So what we learn to do is use the safe word as a moment to stop and take five breaths. Just and that's hard for me because I'm a talker and then decide what the next step is, because sometimes the next step is for us to talk again. We're like, OK, yeah, we can. We look at each other, actually look in each other's eyes. Are we ready to talk about this? And if we're not, then we just make a plan for when we're going to come back to this. That's all. And John Gottman talks about that. When you're flooded, it's okay to need that space, but let's also commit to when we're going to come back together so it's not just another abandonment, so that we're not just enacting that same pattern over and over again. Indeed, just pausing for a few breaths can have such a transformative effect on our experience. So after our safety plan, what's next on our action plan? Yeah, so I like for people to identify their knowledge gaps and their skill gaps. And that sounds very formal, but really, when we're thinking about a knowledge gap, that could be if you struggle with sex and sex is the thing that comes up and and causes lots of fights, there are some actual just pieces that you can learn. There are books you can turn to and coaches you can turn to who can help you understand what has been unspoken about sex in your life, right? But then there are skill gaps. And sometimes we mistake a skill gap for a knowledge gap. A skill gap is when we we do know, we have the information, we know how the, the thing works, but we haven't practiced it enough. So recognizing that you have a skill gap is, oh, I need to practice this. And we often will recognize skill gaps in our partners, <laughs> but not in ourselves. <laughs> like, yeah, if only he could just learn how to do this. If only he would practice doing, I, you know, I'm thinking about my husband struggles to find things. He struggles to find things in the house. And I used to get really, really frustrated because I, I thought he could just get better at finding things in the house. But it turned out when I really turned the mirror on myself and and thought about it, really, I just needed to let go of the idea that he needed to be in the house the same way I did. He doesn't want to know where everything is all the time. I do. That's my thing. So (laughs) he didn't have a skill gap so much as I had an adjustment gap. Like I absolutely could just decide to feel differently about that. And when I did, boom, that fight is now a tenth of what it was. And that's awesome. Like, it was such a shortcut around him trying to learn a huge skill and practice it all the time to satisfy something that was not a need for me. It's just a like. It's just a want. And it's not even a really strong one. Kind of goes back to our shadow and realizing the things that we project onto our partners are basically often the criticism we have of our partners is more of a reflection of ourselves than it is of them. Yeah. At the very least... There's some piece of it. Now, I like when I'm thinking about shadow, I like to remember that a shadow projection, a projection won't stick. 
if there isn't some seed of truth to it. So that projection, I, I'm, I'm plastering all over my partner because they don't have their act together. And I, I'm, I think that they're just discombobulated and they, they can't find anything and they're always late for things. There is a seed of truth to that. And he does tend to be five or six minutes late for things. He does tend to have trouble finding things. However, the real, the real trouble is that I need to look at myself and learn to accept that. It's not necessarily that we need to change something. I just need to accept that part of myself. Let it be okay. That part of me that wants control all the time. <laughs> Breathe some space into that and let it be and stop projecting it out there into a place where I think I can fix it. It's really amazing to hear you, to hear your awareness of like your own patterns and how much you're walking your own talk, so to speak, and Trying. encouraging... <laughs> <laughs> and encouraging, you know, everyone in relationships needs to know their own, own patterning and a lot of people don't and kind of controlled by unconscious patterns that they don't realize is affecting their relationship. So I hope our listeners are hearing you talk about different quirks and foibles and just the way you are in general and also realize, okay, I need to own up who I am because of course nobody's perfect, right? We all have our own things to work on. We all have our own shadows. We all have as you say, knowledge gaps and skill gaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's great because when we do, we, we can realize that the process begins with us and it's such an empowering sensation. My partner has his own work to do. That's true. But I can start with me, which means I don't have to wait for anyone. I can just start with my work. I can start working on accepting who I am and then working to fill those knowledge gaps and skill gaps. I had a lot to learn. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I wrote the book the way I did. I didn't intend to talk about my own story when I first wrote it, but um, I learned the hard, hard, hard way. I did. I made every mistake. <laughs> um, I have not been naturally good at this. This has been really, really tough for me. So. I want to share that story because I don't think anybody is hopeless. I think that we can all learn. I, I have sort of a, an almost Scrooge-like story. Like, it's so overwhelming. How did she come back from that? It's a long walk, but it's totally doable. Nobody is hopeless and everything is talk aboutable. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So much hope and promise. I really quickly want to do a bit of an overview of the action plan because I feel like we've talked about a few of the steps that we're going to do in creating it. And I'm wondering if you just give our listeners two basic ideas. One, how many steps are there total? And also, what does it look like when we do come up with an action plan? Like, are we taking a piece of paper and writing down all the bullet points? Or is this like, when you talk about, oh, we want to identify our knowledge gaps and our skill gaps and our own patternings, then comes to mind, well, okay, I might need a professional to, yeah. <laughs> to dig deep into my unconscious patternings about relationships. So what's like the overview about basically what is an action plan and how do we go about creating it? Yeah. So in the book, I laid this out in 12 chapters. I walk through the set of things that I see come up the most frequently. However, not everybody needs to necessarily dig into all those areas at once. Um, so I think of it as it's a very custom experience. There are some basic skills. Self-awareness is right at the center. That everyone, no matter how much work you've done, there's always more self-awareness to do. That's, that is the flip side of malignant narcissism is that healthy turning towards ourselves and knowing ourselves, right? So that always gets onto the action plan. 
But then from there, it's going to be a custom job because not everybody needs all the pieces and not everybody needs all of them right now. So what I say is I would have somebody open the book. If you want to do this on your own, open up the book and and just go down the chapters and look and say, what ones of those jump out at me? What am I going to need to pay special attention to? You're probably going to want to read through the whole thing. It's, it's a pretty easy read. But think about it as you're not going to need to pick up every single one of these rocks and carry them all, right? You're going to pick up three or four. So what I think is look at where you're having the most struggle. Are you having struggle around arguments? Are you having struggle around money, around sex? Are you having a, a hard time because you're just not connecting? Like you, you can't even remember why you're with this person. Who is this person? Notice that. And from there, creating an action plan is it's, it's different for different kinds of people. For me and for many of my clients, it is a process of actually writing down, here are the things I'm going to be working on over the next three months. I'm going to be working on these. And we make an actual written down. It does look a lot like a business plan. It's, you know, it's a, it's a report, really. Like, here's the stuff. This has been causing a whole lot of problems. I see these unconscious things. And I know next week I'm still going to be acting out these unconscious patterns. So let me write them down in a place where I can refer to this so that I don't have to just keep coming back into the office and thinking, why do I say the same thing over and over and over again? Writing it down is not a bad idea. But there are other people who who work in a slightly different way. And for them, creating an action plan might be just as simple as choosing a safety plan, putting a safety plan in place, and then choosing to stay with the connecting piece. The, the like just just getting into the connecting um the chapter on connecting talks about how am i showing up am i am i doing any deep dives with my partner am I, am I showing up and i think of that as a good way for someone who isn't sure what's wrong in their relationship but it's just feeling off it's not quite satisfying often if we spend some time connecting the other places that we need to work on and make a plan to have a really solid relationship those will become apparent as we as we start to connect again because what happens is people have pulled apart so far that they don't even remember it now it's just all blame and projection and nothing's really nothing's really workable so we need to come into enough contact to have some recognition of what it is we'd like to change so yeah and i do get really practical people who resonate with the idea of an action plan for love are it's not everyone some people really do want to surrender and trust love and if that works for you awesome but if that hasn't been working for you, I don't want any shame attached to the idea that you want to actually write down a plan. You want to make a written agreement with your partner about how you're going to handle sticky situations. There's no shame in that. That's just a different way to do it. Yeah, when I'm hearing you talk about like writing down your action plan and sharing it with your partner, it almost feels like a user's manual. Yes, yes. <laughs> totally. Basically, when you come into the relationship, listen, I have these patterns, I'm working on them, mm -hmm. and I appreciate, you know, just your help around them. Yeah. People have said to me, I didn't know that this was going to be true, but once the book hit, many people who were in between relationships, they were like, yeah, I think I'm going to date. And here we are in this pandemic time when a lot of people are taking a little break or step back from some dating. And I was really surprised to hear how many people who are single right now are like, oh, this is actually a great plan to work through because I don't need an actual partner. This starts with me. Do the exercises, pay attention to myself and make make a plan for how I'd like to show up. And yeah, go ahead and make the user's guide. It's a wonderful thing to have and to be able to meet your relationship, your next relationship from a place of, I've been in here doing the work. And what have you been doing? You know, what what's your process like? Because I like 
When my partners have processes, I feel a little safer. I know that they are turning towards themselves instead of away from themselves. I like that. Yeah, it's a really wonderful green flag, you know, other than red flag, but meeting somebody for the first time and realizing that they're committed to their own growth and healing and being the best partner that they can be. So thank you so much, Jolie, for sharing your very hopeful approach to love and relationships and that nobody is broken and we can all understand our patternings and be fully empowered in our relationships. And I want to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Mm, Yes, that is an awesome question. I wish everyone knew that love is messy and that's a good thing doesn't need to be neat, organized, tidy, or straightforward for it to be wonderful. It's okay to have a messy love story. It's yours. It's okay to have a messy love story. It's yours. Beautiful. Ah, Thank you so much, Jolie, for coming on to the show and sharing your insights and wisdom and action plan. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you and work with you, how can they find you? You can find me at JolieHamilton.com and uh, all my socials are linked through there too. And you can even grab, I have a free role clarity um, relationship toolkit that people can grab if they're, if they like this kind of work, it's a great way to have a conversation about one of the sticky spots that often pops up in relationship. So yeah, just JolieHamilton.com. Wonderful. Thank you, Jolie, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember that self-awareness is key and crucial in our relationships. We can be aware of our wants, aware of our needs, aware of our shadow, as well as our past patterning. And we also hope you remember that nobody is hopeless and everything is talk aboutable. Whatever problems you have in your relationship can be solved if both partners come to it with love and acceptance. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Jolie. Thanks for having me, Zach. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 